So, the truth about sadism, part the third, the Marquis de Sade. The Marquis de Sade. This guy, holy crap. A society is more revealed by who it reveres rather than who lives within it. Of all the people to pluck from obscurity and move to the center of a lot of discourse in the West, the Marquis de Sade is really, really instructive, terrifyingly instructive as a whole. So if we want to look at the origins of sadism, at least the modern conception, the word, the language, we got to look at this guy. It's a pretty unsettling legacy. And his life and works, particularly Justine and philosophy in the bedroom, have left an indelible mark in our understanding of sadism. So his books not only detail sexual perversions, but also articulate a worldview where cruelty and violence are extolled as natural and even virtuous human tendencies. So this was from our researcher, a note, having known something of Desaad from bits of the 2005 movie titled The Libertine with Johnny Depp and the research I did on the French Revolution and knowing the kind of monstrosities of pe- that people from France can produce, I girded my gut and soul before actually reading any of the content of his books. I expected and prepared for the worst. I am not a powder puff, he says. I'm nearly a 40-year-old man who grew up along with the internet and neglectful parents. I only made it a chapter or two into one of his books before it was pointless to continue. If you're curious, it's as bad as it gets. Whatever you can imagine, it's worse. It's utter malevolence and evil, ninth circle of hell demonic. It's awfully written, not just mad ramblings, but that makes the malevolent content all the worse. This was someone who could summon his reason, whatever, of man makes him great and exceptional from animals, whatever it was that God breathed into that, and bend it towards supporting the interests of evil. And the, 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 the language and the content is, is pretty horrendous, so just be aware. Maybe don't play this with kids around, or you know, whatever, right? Just, just be aware. And also, the researcher points out, he says, anecdotally, I'll add that during this research, I came across a 1975 Italian movie, Salo, or 120 Days of Sodom, loosely based on one of Desaad's novels. It's broken up into four parts, The Antiferno, the Circle of Manias, the Circle of Shit, and the Circle of Blood are dissimilar to Dante's Inferno with layer after layer of descending into a deeper and deeper hell. It's uh, really appalling. And for a modern version of Desaad's work, uh, I've talked about this movie before, it is a movie that has haunted my brain and is a world that is terrifying to explore, strangely compelling in its malevolence and nihilism. Uh, the movie is, of course, Marlon Brando's the Last Tango in Paris, written by and directed by an avowed Marxist and full of, of hell itself. So, let's talk about the life of Marquis de Sade. De Sade's origins trace back to the 2nd of June, 1740. He was born in Paris as the sole surviving child of Jean-Baptiste François-Joseph, Count de Sade, and Marie-Eleanor de Maille de Camas. The Sade family held the lineage in provincial nobility dating back to the 13th century, and Sade's bloodline connected him to the French monarchy through his mother. And he wrote, Born in Paris, in the bosom of luxury and plenty, I believed from the time I could reason that nature and fortune had joined together to heap their gifts upon me. I believed it because people were foolish enough to tell me so. And this ridiculous prejudice made me haughty, despotic, and angry. It seemed that everything must give in to me, that the whole world was flatter my whims, or would flatter my whims, and that it was up to me alone to conceive and satisfy them, right? So look at this. Well, first of all, of course, among the aristocracy, there's a lot of inbreeding, uh, not exactly great for stability. And in order for there to be a ruling aristocracy, you have to pamper the vanity and feelings of superiority of the aristocrats. The, the haughtiness, uh, you can see that in, was it Drago, the, the blonde kid in Harry Potter? You can see, I saw this, of course, in the British boarding schools, this, this haughtiness, this feeling of superiority, this feeling of contempt for the lower or lesser orders. So the ruling classes, by definition, are, are sadistic. And how do you create that sadism? How do you, nostr- uh, how do you, how do you foster and nourish? I was going to nostr- <laughs> flourish. Uh, how do you nourish and foster this sense of cruelty, this uh, willingness or ability to be cruel? Well. 
you 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 say that you are superior to children, even if you instill in them a sense of noblesse oblige that your superiority gives you obligations. You instill in children that they are superior to everyone else. And what happens then, of course, is that superiority, which can't be sustained often in reality, must then be sustained through brutality. Like if somebody is genuinely superior, a lot of times there's a lot of benevolence, right? I mean, you think of really good tennis players are often quite encouraging towards other tennis players and quite humble about their abilities. But if you pump up someone's vanity and tell them that they're fantastic and great and wonderful and superior, and it's not foundationally true, then it has to be maintained through violence because it can't be maintained through ability, right? And of course, if you look at society these days, you can see that you know certain segments of society are filled full of outlandish praise. Certain segments of society are filled full of contempt and hostility and verbal abuse and, and humiliation. And this is uh, setting the groundwork, so sowing the seeds for, well, terrible, terrible violence. So he says, people told me that I was wonderful and, and perfect and so on. And if you're wonderful and perfect, then of course, with vanity comes brutality. Well, with vanity comes uh, violence. Because you are told that you are wonderful and perfect. And therefore, anybody who opposes your will is by definition immoral. Everything you will is perfect. You don't achieve virtue. You don't achieve perfection. You don't strive towards it. You have manifested it. You are a god. You are told that you are god. Everything you are, everything you will, everything that you want is perfectly good and moral and holy. And therefore, everyone who opposes your will is immoral. And if they continue to oppose your will, they must be uh, destroyed, right? So he says, well, everything must give in to me. The whole world had to flatter my whims and that it was up to me alone to conceive and uh, satisfy them. So, unearned superiority. You see it in race, you see it in class, you see it in religion. This is unearned superiority. You're superior, you're best, everyone exists to serve you. Well, that creates narcissism. And with the narcissism comes uh, sadism. And even if the sadism is not conscious, it manifests, right? So if you can convince someone that he is as superior to the masses as a farmer is to his livestock, even if he's not particularly, doesn't want to cruelly torture his livestock, he's still going to just exploit them, still going to kill them for food, and, right? So, and, and we see this, of course, in criminality. One of the surest ways of creating a criminal, and this is a single mom and son phenomenon quite often, one of the surest ways of creating a criminal is to constantly praise the criminal, oh, sorry, to constantly praise the young man, say that he's superior, and then deny him uh, any consequences for his own bad behavior, shield him from the consequences of his own bad behavior, and you will get an exploiter or criminal. Dessart's father, a captain of dragoons, undertook diplomatic missions to various countries, such as the Russian Empire and Britain. Dessart's mother served as a lady-in-waiting to a princess, and during his early years, he resided in their lavish home. In his infancy, Saad was described as spoiled, demanding and prone to violent outbursts. In 1744, he was sent to live with his grandmother in Avignon, possibly due to a quarrel with the prince's son. So, so here's an example. At the tender age of four, during a play date with a six- or seven-year-old prince from the royal family, young Dessard became obsessed with a toy belonging to the other boy. Suddenly, without warning, he launched a vicious attack on the prince. He kicked, beat, scratched, pulled hair, and relentlessly struck the prince's face. It required the intervention of several grown adults to separate the shrieking Dessard from the other child. So, yeah, that's, of course, uh, what happens. If you are indulged, if you are not empathized with, but rather praised, then you are set up to an unstable height. And that unstable vein height must be sustained through rel relentless attacks. And also, of course, you become addicted to praise, right? So if you tell someone, oh, you're fantastic just for existing, you're wonderful just for breathing, well, that's completely false, obviously, you have to earn these things. Then what happens is you lose the motive power of your own mind because you become addicted to other people's definitions of you rather than you yourself. You know, like if you're extremely overweight and so on, and then you don't want to lose weight or whatever, people tell you you look fantastic and fabulous and wonderful no matter what then you become addicted not to objective facts or you don't subjugate yourself to 
objective facts, but you become addicted to other people's descriptions of you, right? So if someone can convince you that you are a good person for, say, serving the king and attacking his enemies, then you become dependent upon that definition. You, you become enslaved by the people who define you against reality, against objective facts, against objective truth. So praising people is a sort of lariat. It, it is a sort of noose. It is a sort of net by, when, by which you capture people. It's re- really important to understand that excessive praise is a form of manipulation. It is a form of enslavement. Because if you can reorient people's perspectives to descriptions rather than facts, right? And you'll see, of course, people who criticize me, they never actually include any facts, really, right? I mean, or if they are, they're extremely one-sided, right? There's never any balance. So they're trying to get people to believe, not me or sort of rounded truth about me, but their own description. And once you can get people to be addicted to your words, then you can control them. It's a form of blackmail in a sense. So I'll define you as the good, and you're not actually good. I'll define you as the good. I'll define you as being good, as doing good, as being right. But then, you see, if you displease me, I will withdraw that definition and ascribe you as bad, right? It's really a form of blackmail because you create a false sense of self-esteem through your language. And then what happens is people get addicted to your praise, but being addicted to your praise, they are also then become desperately dependent upon that praise and fear, really more than anything, more than death itself, they fear the withdrawal of that praise. And in particular, they fear uh, criticism. They fear criticism. If you unjustly praise someone, they're dependent upon your positive language, like they would become dependent on a drug, and then they feel both the absence of that drug and the withdrawal. Right? So if you can get people dependent on your praise, you control them, because now or then they become also dependent upon your criticism. Right? That they get a false sense of positivity from your praise, therefore they will get a desperate, terrifying sense of catastrophe from your criticism. I mean, it really is just getting people addicted to a drug, right? And once you can get them addicted to a drug, then you control them if you are in control of that drug. That's what the media does, right? They'll praise you with always the threat of damning you afterwards. So a year after young Desaad attacked this uh, other boy, he was placed under the guardianship of his paternal uncle, the Abbe Desaad, a priest known for his libertine lifestyle. During his stay at his uncle's chateau, Desaad first started to grasp the notions of sex. His uncle, a priest known as an abbe, disregarded the customary vow of celibacy. Women frequented the chateau as if it were a factory, and the abbe engaged in fleeting encounters with them. Desaad took note... <laughs> I'm reading this like the... Uh, who was the Somalian singer Chate? <laughs> Quite the opposite. It is, well, I guess in, in both cases, it is no ordinary love. Desaad took note of this behavior, and as an adult, he sardonically labeled his uncle's residence a bordello or a house of prostitution. So Desaad's uncle permitted him to be cared for by servants who indulged his every desire. His behavior was characterized as pampered and defiant. So at, at this age too, at the age of six, right? So at the age of four, Desaad attacked this other boy. At the age of six, he subjected another boy to such a brutal beating that it raised doubts about whether the victim would ever completely heal. I mean, just imagine, just imagine. Eventually, Desaad's father fell out of favor with the king and was recalled from his diplomatic post in Germany, leading to the decline of his career. Right? So again, praise always has within it the threat of punishment. Right? Praise has it. Uh, excessive praise has also within it always the threat of punishment. It becomes a carrot and a stick used to control people because you don't have any of your own identity and you don't develop your own judgment of yourself. Therefore, your conscience becomes externalized and the giant levers of agony are in the hands of other people, of sophists who praise and punish based upon political power. So, eventually, Desaad's mother left his father to enter a Carmelite convent in Paris. Now, of course, we we can imagine what horrendous, probably horrendous sexual practices Desaad's father inflicted upon his wife that the only refuge she could take. She would be so repelled then by sexual activity that she would enter a convent uh, to, and, and forego men and sexuality, physical contact in that way at all. When Desaad, the young Desaad, reached the age of 10, his uncle decided he had endured enough of his nephew's behavior. 
So he arranged for Dessart to return to Paris for education at a Jesuit, a Jesuit institution. During his time there, Dessart consistently acted out and faced frequent disciplinary actions, notably involving the use of flagellation, right, beating often on the bare buttocks, as a means to deter misbehavior. And this, of course, I experienced as a boy as well. So this experience later became a fixation for him. Biographers hold differing views on whether Desaad endured corporal punishment and sexual abuse at school and how these experiences may have shaped his sexual development. During summer vacations, Desaad stayed with Madame de Raymond, a former lover of his, of his father at the Chateau de Lanville in the Champagne region. Not Champagne, real paint. It was there that he encountered Madame de Saint-Germain, whom Desaad held deep affection for throughout his life. Well, this is what people say. This kind of violent monster is really not capable of deep affection, but he might have some brutal sentimental attachment. Historians often characterize both women as mother figures in Desaad's life. Ah, yes, the Freudian explanation, which explains nothing. Freud is a Mobius strip circle of nothingness, right? If something is present, it confirms Freud's theory. If it's absent, well, it's, re- it's there just repressed. If the opposite is present, well, it's just a reaction formation, and therefore, like, there's no disproof possible in Freudian intellectual architecture. Therefore, it's a cult, not a, not a, uh, not a science, certainly not a philosophy. In 1754, Desaad entered a military academy and eventually attained the rank of sub-lieutenant, <laughs> sub-human, sub-lieutenant by 1759. However, he consistently declined to cultivate relationships with his superiors and was known for his gambling and womanizing, much to his father's dismay. So Desaad's father also engaged in negotiations with a bourgeois family of noble status for his son's marriage to their eldest daughter, of course, the Count regarded his son, Desaad, as a financial liability and overall general headache. Now, and this is other people's language, we're just going to clarify it. Meanwhile, Desaad had fallen in, quote, love with a nobleman's daughter, but faced rejection. Well, because he was evil and crazed. Well, I shouldn't say crazed. He was calculating. And they say he'd fallen in love as if a monster like this is ever capable of love. Maybe a ferocious, demonic, needy, codependent attachment, but not uh, not love, of course. So the woman that he had fallen in this attachment to rejected him, and of course, in his rage, he threatened to accuse her of transmitting venereal disease to the next to the next young man she courted. And that, of course, is is beyond brutal and horrendous. Now, due to his proclamation that he would only marry for love, Desaad resisted the arranged marriage with the bourgeois daughter. But both, both families ended up pushing ahead with the marriage contract, and two days later the wedding ceremony was conducted. And I don't think anybody knows exactly how this was achieved, but over his resistance to this and his threatening of the other woman, the marriage occurred. Now, Desaad was initially pleased with his new bride. Desaad wrote to his uncle expressing his admiration. However, two years later he confided to the abbe that his wife appeared, quote, too cold and too devout. Despite this, she bore him two sons and a daughter, eventually becoming complicit in his involvement with adolescent victims of his crimes, I guess, like Jelaine Maxwell with Jeffrey uh, Epstein, although I think that was more than complicit, in my opinion. So it is it is wild, of course, that, that he corrupted this woman. She must have recoiled and then eventually was, was broken down, or maybe she had a secret sadistic side herself. There weren't many options for her being married to such a man, but this stuff was just, I mean, just horrendous. Just horrendous. So, upon his wife's arrival at the castle in Lacoste, Desaad began a very public affair with her younger sister. His reputation was tainted by sexual involvements with both prostitutes and castle employees of either sex, while also facing allegations of blasphemy. A significant scandal unfolded when he was accused of abusing and imprisoning a woman he had solicited for sexual services, and Desaad was arrested and incarcerated but was soon released. So, pretty, pretty horrendous stuff. The details are, four months after his wedding, Desaad was accused of blasphemy and incitement to sacrilege, which were capital offenses. He had rented a property in Paris, which he used for sexual encounters, on 18th October 1763. I know, it's just funny, because people say Saad 
Uh, I'm going to say Desaad. It's just what people know him better as. On 18th October 1763, Desaad hired a prostitute named Jean Testard. Testard stated to the police that Desaad had locked her in a bedroom before asking whether she believed in God. When she said that she did, Desaad said there was no God and shouted obscenities concerning Jesus and the Virgin Mary. Desaad then masturbated with a chalice and crucifix while shouting obscenities and blasphemies. He asked her to beat him with a cane and an iron scourge, which had been heated by fire, and she, but she refused. Desaad then threatened her with pistols and a sword, telling her that he would kill her if she didn't trample on a crucifix and exclaim obscene blasphemies. She reluctantly complied. She spent the night with Desaad, who read her irreligious poetry. He asked her for sodomy, anal sex, of course, another capital offense, but she refused. The following morning, Testard, I like how they say he asked her, like he didn't ask her, he's imprisoned. The following morning, Testard reported Desaad to the authorities. On 29th October, following a police investigation, Desaad was arrested on the personal orders of the king and jailed in Vincennes prison. Desaad wrote several contrite letters to the authorities in which he expressed remorse and asked to see a priest. After Desaad's father begged Louis XV for clemency, the king ordered Desaad's release on the 13th of November. So this, of course, is kind of Epstein vibes, right? Although we don't know exactly how old the prostitute was. In 1764, he inherited the title of Royal Lieutenant General for specific provinces, primarily an honorary position. Desaad's wealth, obtained through marriage, facilitated a scandalous lifestyle that eventually surpassed the accepted boundaries of libertine behavior for nobles of the era. Meanwhile, his father contemplated joining a monastery. Right, so these are people with a very, very, like our selected, unstable relationship to sexuality. Uh, sex maniacs, hypersexual, and uh, this, of course, is usually premature sexual experiences, to put it as nicely as humanly possible, but yeah, pretty, pretty monstrous stuff. In subsequent years, additional complaints from prostitutes emerged, leading the court to eventually banish Desaad to his estate in Provence. In 1768, he was arrested for imprisoning and brutally assaulting, flogging, cutting with a knife, and dripping hot wax in the wounds, a chambermaid. Uh, This, of course, reminds me of Che Guevara, right, who raped his maid, according to many reports, when he was in his teens. Although Desaad's family managed to buy the silence of the victim, the scandal prompted Desaad to retreat from public life. In 1772, the Marquis de Sade and his manservant Latour faced accusations of drugging and sexually assaulting prostitutes, prompting them to flee to Italy along with his wife's sister. They were sentenced to death in absentia, but managed to evade capture. De Sade later reunited with his wife at Chateau de la Coste. While at the Chateau, de Sade and his wife unlawfully imprisoned five women, some claimed to be minors, and one man for six weeks. This led to his arrest and imprisonment. Although he successfully had the death sentence lifted in 1778, he remained incarcerated and was transferred to various prisons, including the Bastille and eventually to an insane asylum. Here's a quote from his book, Philosophy in the Bedroom. He says, No desire can be termed outlandish, my dear. All desires can be found in nature. When nature created human beings, it delighted in differentiating their sexual leanings as much as their faces. We should no more be astonished by the diversity of our features than by the diversity that nature has placed in our affections. Right, no desire can be turned, termed outlandish. Well, this is, of course, hedonism. And it is the elevation of lust to the ideal. That all lust must be satisfied, that all limits on human behavior are prudish and reactionary. And, of course, it is anti-philosophical in its essence. Right, because it is domination, right? So no desire can be termed outlandish. Well, this is a, a massive lie. It's a, a massive lie. So, for instance, uh, all, all desires are valid. Let's say all desires are valid. Okay, let's make that a, a UPB statement, right? All desires are valid. Let's say all desires are valid and should be acted on, right? Or anyone who acts on their desires is fine, is okay, is good, right? Okay. So, w- w- you can't imprison people then, right? Because if you have a desire to imprison someone and rape them half to death, well, they have a desire to not be imprisoned, and their desire, why is their desire to not be imprisoned and not be raped? Why is that not valid? Right, so this is all nonsense. This is all obvious nonsense. No desire can be turned outlandish. All desires can be found in nature. Yeah, so you've got to exercise all your desires. Okay, fine. So then you can't use violence against people. You can't imprison them. You can't rape them. You can't kidnap them. You can't slash them with knives and then drip hot wax into their wounds because they don't want that. And their desires are being subjugated to your desires. So it's self-serving bullshit. Horrendous self-serving bullshit and blindingly obvious, of course. 
1790, after, after his divorce, Dessard began a relationship with an actress in Paris. He got involved in politics during the French Revolution, serving in the National Convention and writing controversial pamphlets. He even gained a position in public office, joining the National Convention as part of the radical far-left faction. He authored several provocative political pamphlets, but his aristocratic background made him susceptible to the government scrutiny, and in 1791 he was imprisoned for criticizing Robespierre. Now, this, I mean, this is wild. It's absolutely wild and mind-blowing, and I'm sort of in a unique position to sort of talk about this, because after he, I mean, blasphemed horribly after, which, you know, you could defend in sort of free speech principles, but certainly was a capital offense at the time, after he kidnapped, imprisoned, raped, tortured, mutilated people, he's like, yeah, he's welcome in politics. In fact, the only issue that anyone had with him was not that he had done all these horrendous things and, you know, half-murdered people and, and kidnapped and tortured, imprisoned them, right? And, and the, the, the detail of slashing open their bodies and then dripping hot wax into the wounds. I mean, you can't even imagine just how absolutely appalling and monstrous and evil this is. He's, he's still welcoming, he's welcoming leftist politics. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, totally welcome in leftist politics, but eventually in 1791, he was imprisoned for criticizing Robespierre. Yes, you see, no particular problem. You can kidnap, imprison, torture, mutilate prostitutes and men, but, but whatever you do, don't criticize Robespierre. See, that, that's a bridge too far, man. That's, that's beyond the pale. <laughs> it's so horrendous. So, eventually he was released, and after his release, he returned to writing sexually explicit and violent fiction. He published the novels Justine in 1791 and Juliette in 1796 anonymously. These works stirred controversy, with Justine portraying the story of a prostitute subjected to rape, orgies, and torture in her pursuit of virtue, while Juliet followed the tale of Justine's sister, a nymphomaniac and murderer who embraced a life devoid of virtue. Both novels criticized theology and the Catholic Church. In 1801, Napoleon Bonaparte ordered the arrest of the anonymous author. Oh, but by the by, the family's castle Lacoste, which really sounds like something out of a Dungeons and Dragons book. During the French Revolution, the castle was vandalized and largely destroyed. The construction materials were eventually sold off. In year four of the Republic in 1796, remember they came up with their own calendar, due to crippling debts, the castle and its estate was sold to Rivere, a deputy of Vachlouse. Rivere was later deported to French Guyana. He died in 1798. So that's what happened to their property. In 1801, Desaad was arrested and incarcerated again. Within a few months, he faced accusations of seducing young inmates leading to the de his declaration as insane in 1803. Consequently, he was transferred to Charenton Asylum with his maintenance expenses covered by his wife, René Pelagie, and their three children. During this time, Marie Constance posed as his wife and was allowed to reside with him in the asylum, boy, permanent conjugal visits. That's what they call punishment. Under the asylum director's supervision, Desaad organized theatrical productions with fellow inmates as actors, a practice that continued until 1809, when new court orders resulted in Desaad's solitary confinement. He was stripped of writing materials, denied visitors, and subjected to strict Isolation. Despite these restrictions, Desaad maintained a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old daughter of one of the asylum staff members during the final four years of his life. On December 2nd, 1814, the Marquis Desaad passed away in his cell at Charenton, and he was interred in the asylum's cemetery. After he died, his son burned all of his unpublished writings. However, numerous works, including novels, essays, and plays, remain accessible to contemporary scholars. So that is a, a dismal life. And for a hedonist, he had a lot of stuff that really wasn't very hedonistic at all, to put it mildly, and we'll get into how badly he ended up, or how much time he spent in jail. So the people often forget this. Oh, he's a libertine, he's a hedonist. Well, he was pretty bad at it. But let's deal a little bit with how the hell did he get away with all this crazy stuff, right? Of course, he came from an aristocratic family, provided him a certain level of protection and privilege. His noble status often allowed him greater leeway than a commoner would have received in similar circumstances. 
The more things change, the more they stay the same. Of course, we know this now. If you're connected to people in power, you can do just about anything and get away with it. Whereas, you know, it's like the law for my enemies and clemency for my friends. That's the way that politics works, particularly on the left, of course, as a whole. So his family, and particularly his mother-in-law, played a significant role in his life. In his life, So initially they protected him by hiding his actions, paying people off, or having him declared insane to avoid scandal. However, later on they turned against him and were instrumental in having him imprisoned. Of course, the changing political climate in France played a big role in his life. During the French Revolution, attitudes towards traditional authority and morality were, to put it as nicely as possible, in flux. At times, this chaos provided Dessart the opportunities to gain his freedom as traditional power structures were upended. Like a lot of habitual criminals, Dessart was very adept at navigating the legal and institutional frameworks of his time. He spent, of course, many years in various prisons and asylums, often obtaining temporary releases or transfers due to his manipulation of legal loopholes and his influential connection. Some of his contemporaries, and of course many later figures, defended Dessart's work on the grounds of its literary and artistic value, separating his provocative writings from his personal life, which of course is complete nonsense because his personal life was research for the violence, viciousness, and ugliness of his novels. Now, of course, there were people who said, oh, I disagree with his actions and his writings, that's terrible, but other people were like, no, no, he's, he's a, a symbol of defiance against traditional morality and authority. He's uh, libertine, he's authentic, he's, you know, blah, 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 right? Just, and we'll sort of get into why this divide occurred. Of course, like most sadists, like all sadists I've ever known, Desaad was an expert at portraying himself as a victim. Our society is corrupt and hypocritical. It's unjust to persecute me. And this self-representation of his victimhood, his quote, victimhood, gained him sympathy in some pretty corrupt quarters. So, we can say he got away with a lot, and, I mean, the capital offense is sure, but over the course of his life, he did spend a total of 32 years in prisons or asylums. So, not, not particularly ideal, but here's where the rubber really hits the road. Here's where we really start cooking mit gas. So, besides impact the hell was going on with this lunatic, and why do we know him? So, of course, the Marquis de Sade's life was a series of scandals and imprisonments and exiles, punctuated by moments of aristocratic and criminal excess and literary production. I guess similar to what happened with Hitler, sometimes when you throw people in jail, they get a chance to write a lot. This was the case with de Sade. His most infamous works were written during his incarcerations. In Justine... For example, he narrates the story of a woman subjected to relentless abuse and exploitation using her plight to argue against the principles of virtue and justice. In his book Philosophy in the Bedroom, he goes further, presenting a dialogue that aggressively promotes a philosophy of libertinism unrestrained by moral boundaries or societal norms. But, again, it's not libertinism because it's not universal. If we make the case that, oh, pleasure should be satisfied, you should pursue your own happiness, if we universalize that, then you can't be a sadist, right? Because if it's good to pursue and achieve one's pleasures, well, the people he kidnapped and tortured didn't want to be kidnapped and tortured, which we know because some of them ran immediately to the police for justice. Good luck. But it can't be universalized. Sadism is, by its very nature, relies upon the opposition of your victim to your sadistic impulses, right? People don't want to be kidnapped. They don't want to be tortured. They don't want to have their flesh cut open and hot wax dripped into their wounds. Of course, right? So it's not libertinism. The, the pursuit of pleasure can't be universalized. It can't be a philosophy. It can be a selfish manifestation of brutal impulses. Not a philosophy. So, yeah, it, it's, not, it's not libertinism because it requires that you indulge your pleasures at the expense of other people's pleasures, right? In fact, they, they horribly hate and revile everything that you're doing. So it's subjected to the same argument as rape, theft, assault, and murder in UPP. It's asymmetrical, right? So, yeah, it's not a pleasure-based philosophy because it requires violating the pleasures and, in fact, in fact, inflicting unwanted horrors on others. So they, they don't get to pursue their pleasures because you're pursuing yours, so it's not UPP. 
So, in the assertion from his book Philosophy in the Bedroom, he writes, Cruelty is the first sentiment nature injects in us all. Cruelty is the first sentiment nature injects in us all. Now, that's interesting. The word injects. The word injects. That, to me, is a straight-up dog whistle for sexual abuse. Straight-up. Injects, right? That is forcible intrusion into the body. This, of course, would not be associated with vaccines. At the time, not a lot of vaccinated injections in the 18th century. So, uh, we're talking about sexual abuse. Injects is uh, oral or anal rape of some kind, right? So, cruelty is the first sentiment nature injects in us all. No, just that you're crazy evil, literally ungodly family. Oof, it's just brutal. So, Desaad argues that destructive actions such as an infant breaking toys or biting are natural precursors to reason. This perspective not only grossly misinterprets human nature, but also dangerously normalizes extreme aggression. Furthermore, Desaad presents sexual violence as a domain primarily of the masculine, asserting, and I quote, the debility to which nature condemned women incontestably proves that the design is for man. Right, so women are smaller and weaker, therefore can be preyed upon, therefore all of that, right? Okay, so here's the part. I mean, I find all of this stuff very interesting, but here's the part that's going to blow your mind. The social and historical context of Desaad's writing. So, his works emerged during a period of significant upheaval and change, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. And, of course, for more on the French Revolution, you can join the community at freedomain.locals.com and uh, sign up, and if you subscribe, you get my 11-plus hours on the French Revolution. So, scientific revolution, Enlightenment, French Revolution, marked by a questioning of traditional values and institutions, including the Church and the monarchy. However, rather than championing the Enlightenment ideals of reason, liberty, and progress, Desaad took a path of extreme libertinism and nihilism. And again, libertinism is a word that is used, but it is not a philosophy. It's just selfish brutalizing of others. Sadistic. It's not a philosophy. It can't be universalized. His writings can be seen as a perverse counter-enlightenment, where rationality and freedom are twisted into justifications for barbarity. Desaad's philosophy, I mean, obviously it's grossly disturbing. You can't just Dismiss it as mere fantasy or the ramblings of a deranged mind had great influence. His works reflect a deep cynicism about human nature and the social order, challenging the very foundations of morality and ethics. They force us to confront the potential for cruelty and depravity within humanity, a realization that arguably is even more relevant today than it was in his time. So, what the hell was going on? (laughs) What the literal hell was going on? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. We really, really, really are still processing the effects of the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution, we're talking 16th century onwards, right? The scientific revolution is so profoundly disturbing to the entire history and mindset of mankind that you really can't go too far in exaggerating its impact. So, to to understand what happened with the scientific revolution, it's really important to think about what happened before the scientific revolution. What happened? to people's minds, in people's minds, before the scientific revolution. We lived in a cozy amniotic sack of the divine. The world was the center of the universe. God eyed everything. God viewed everything. And the material was immaterial. The material was not relevant, in particular. The material might represent some temptations, a lust, a gluttony, and so on. Laziness, conservation of energy. But the essence of the universe was intangible consciousness and immortal virtue, right? The moral essence of the universe was the only true reality. In the Platonic idea, the forms, the concepts, the abstractions were the only truly real things. And the material, the body, the flesh, the lust, the passions were fading, falling, tempting shadows designed to draw us away from the divine to hell itself. We were not living with morality. Life was morality. Life was a morality play. The passage through the veil of tears of life was a mere test. Was a mere test. The science, science came along and said, the earth is not the center of the universe. The earth is not flat. The earth is not fixed. The earth is not stationary. We're whirling 
we're a rock whirling around, a fireball whirling around, a bunch of other fireballs rolling around a universe that is, to all intents and purposes, infinite in its extension. We are not even an afterthought of the universe. We are an accidental aggregation of atoms. Morality is the province of the human. The human is differentiated from the animal by the presence of the soul and of moral commandments. However, the scientific revolution, the Baconian revolution, says, and this is what terrified Pascal so much in Pensees, the silence of these infinite spaces terrifies me. What is there in the world? Is there a narrative? Is there a story? Is there a plot? Are there rewards? Are there punishments? Are there morals? Are there ethics? No, says science. All there is is the atoms and the void. All there is is stuff and nothing, things and emptiness, matter and nothing. Pull apart matter, you cannot find God. Pull apart things, we cannot find morality. We cannot find moral rules. This, of course, is the famous commandment or dictum or dictate of Hume. You cannot get an ought from an is. Now, of course, people could just dismiss all of the science, say it's all superstition, it's all nonsense. But the problem is, when you have people, I mean, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people over time, when you have tens of millions of people alive only because of science, it's kind of tough for them to dismiss science. You dance with the one that brung you. And, of course, we think about the scientific revolution in terms of uh, astronomy and uh, maybe a little bit of magnetism and some atomic theories, although it was Democritus in The Nature of Things back in the ancient world who talked about that stuff to begin with, but there was more thoughts along these kinds of lines. And that's not the scientific revolution that matters. That's a bunch of abstract intellectuals battling with high-level priests about spinning balls in space. No, no, no. The scientific revolution that matters, and I wrote about this in my novel Just Poor, the scientific revolution that matters is the one that produced 10 to 20 times the amount of food. Right? The agricultural scientific revolution. The science of the soil was the real scientific revolution. And it was the first one. Because you can't have an urban intelligentsia without excess food production. And you can't have excess food production without the science of the soil. Tens of millions of people lived because for the first time in human history there was enough food without rampant slavery and conquering. And so people didn't starve to death and they also had enough energy to survive illness often. And so... Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And relying on religion, relying on the church, did not really produce much extra food. But turning to the science of the soil rescued literally countless people from death, both directly and indirectly. So did following the word of God do more benefit or did following the agricultural scientists produce more benefit? Who helped humanity more? The priest who says, you're cursed and evil for existing, and you must pay me to lift the curse called hell from you. Or the humble scientist who studied crop rotation, winter crops like turnips, and encouraged, as the early economists did, of course, foreign trade, the reduction of trade barriers. Who benefited humanity more? the priest, or the scientific farmer. Now, this is huge, huge ramifications. I mean, you know, of course, that more British sailors in the course of the British, British Navy, more British sailors died from scurvy than from enemy combat. So, the person who figured out that vitamin C saved you from scurvy provided more benefit to the Royal Navy than all the armies and navies had harmed it in the past. Who is providing the most benefit, the scientist or the priest? And if you're only alive because of the scientist, it's kind of tough to say the priest. But if morality is God, then disbelieving in God is also disbelieving in morality. Let me say this again. I've said it before. It was important in this context. Amakwi Desaad is the 
inevitable extension of this. If you disbelieve in God, if God is morality, then you can escape morality by disbelieving in God. That's the huge problem with religious morality. Hey, if you believe in it, you get your morality. It's a little subjective, it's a little loosey-goosey, but you get your morality. But if you say, no, the scientists have proven that all that is is atoms and the void, nowhere in which is inscribed any tenets of morality, then if you follow the scientists, you leave God behind, and when you leave God behind, you leave morality behind, and then there is no difference between man and animal. And that morality is a kind of superstition to restrain the pleasurable will of the animal. Is there sadism in nature? Please understand this, right? Ask this question. Is there such a thing as sadism in nature? No, there is not. Is there such a thing as lying in nature? No. Is there such a thing as rape in among the animals? No. So if all we are, if all that is, is atoms and void, then there is no such thing as morality. Therefore, how should you organize your life? By pleasure. You have to organize your life somehow, figure out what you're going to do with your day. So if there's no morality, which science seems to prove, then all you have left is pleasure. And then, since there's no morality, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Why wouldn't you kidnap? There's no real such thing, there's no really such thing as kidnapping. Why wouldn't you abuse? There's not really any such thing as abuse. Sadism is named after the Marquis de Sade, who himself did not believe in sadism. He said cruelty is natural. It is the first law of nature, is cruelty. And of course, if you look at animals and you see them tearing each other apart and raping each other and attacking each other and hyenas stealing from lions and dolphins and ducks raping wantonly, you say, well, they're the pursuit of pleasure. And all of the dictates of morality come down to, imagine, imagine I'm, I, I want to start my philosophy show way back in the day, like 18 years ago, I want to start my philosophy show. And someone says to me, my invisible friend doesn't want you to. My invisible friend disapproves of you starting a philosophy show. Well, what would I say? Oh, well, that's interesting. I suppose. Okay. So your invisible friend doesn't... Oh, my invisible friend does like me starting a philosophy show. So I'm my invisible friend either. I don't believe in them. I'll just make up my own. So for the secularists, for the materialists, for the science addicts and the descent to the cunning animal advocates, thou shalt not through the commands of religiosity, equate to my imaginary friend doesn't approve. But if I don't believe in your imaginary friend, what do I care about his approval? It's all made up. It's all nonsense. It's all silly. Why would I not do what I want, just like the animals do? So it's really the agricultural revolution that is one of the dominoes that results in somebody like the Marquis de Sade. And leftists are atomists. Rightists are spiritualists. They are soul. Right? We are differentiated because of the soul. The soul yearns for virtue. Virtue is commanded by God. We are distinct from the animals. We have moral responsibility. Whereas leftists come out of the scientific and biological revolutions and say, who has benefited mankind more? All the priests in the known universe or the guy who figured out how to produce winter crops? And of course, the big challenge has been, if science is correct and all that exists are the atoms and the void, where does morality come from? Well, the answer can't be religion. Because if you then don't believe in religion, and it can't be proved beyond the shadow of a doubt, requires faith. If morality requires faith, then simply disbelieving in it, it erases it from your mind. It doesn't erase it from reality, you still have a conscience and so on but it erases it from your mind, and then you have permission to do whatever. Why? Because nature doesn't need permission. Nature does not require permission. Nature is a war of all against all, and you win by whatever means necessary. All is fair in reproduction and resource acquisition. All is fair in love and war. If morality comes from invisible beings and you don't believe in those invisible beings, you don't believe in morality, do what you will. Shall be the whole of the law. So the left evolves out of the scientific revolution. And the left is adrift in a sea of cunning animalism 
because it doesn't accept morality. Morality is the opinion of your imaginary friend. There's no such thing as lying. There's no such thing as kidnapping. There is only indulging in your pleasures because that's fun and enjoyable or denying your pleasures because you believe in the dictates of imaginary friends. Morality is superstition. And if you don't believe in the curse called evil, then it doesn't exist for you. Of course, the rush should have always been to find a substitute for morality for those who don't accept the existence of God. That's UPB, right? That's universally preferable behavior. It's the proof of morality without requiring a belief in God. It accords with most religious instructions against theft, rape, assault, and murder. But it proves. It proves these things. So just to sort of reiterate, where does the Marquis de Sade come from? Well, agricultural revolution produces excess food, produces urban intelligentsia, who then explore science. Science leads people away from God, which causes them to no longer believe in morality, which then uncorks any restraint to the animal pleasures and desires, uh, takes away empathy. Nature does not run on empathy. Nature runs on exploitation, so to speak, and cruelty. The Marquis de Sade is the inevitable consequence of empty animalistic secularism, secularism that denies universal moral standards, views them as superstition. I mean, if it could be proven to you, it's not true, but let's just take a thought experiment here. If it could be proven to you that if you could find a way to disbelieve in gravity, you could actually fly without danger, that if you genuinely, you know what they always say, just believe and you can fly magic, Tinkerbell, Peter Pan, if you could will yourself to disbelieve in gravity, you would no longer be subject to gravity. Wouldn't you view as vaguely foolish everybody who still staggered and walked around rather than flew? If you could be convinced that if you disbelieved in aging, you would no longer age, wouldn't you view as foolish all of those who continued to age? If you believed that if you accepted that you had a million dollars, you would have a million dollars, wouldn't you view everyone who remained poor as foolish and unwise? It's the same thing with morality. If you believe that rejecting morality eliminates morality, then it would be the same as rejecting physical limitations as surmounting physical limitations. If I believe I have a full head of hair, then I have a full head of hair. You could say it's magical thinking, but of course this morality is tightly bound into the divine, then disbelieving in the divine is disbelieving in morality, and then it opens up the gates of hell to do whatever the hell you want. Why wouldn't you? You're an animal. Does the hyena say, well, technically we didn't chase and catch and kill that zebra, so it's really the lion's property. We should leave it be. It doesn't say that. If they can get it, they will get it. If you can capture and torture and kill and you want to capture and torture and kill, why wouldn't you? It's what animals do. It's what animals do. Science strips away God, strips away morality. And you end up with some very cunning and very dangerous animals with no sense of self-restraint that destroy everything and often everyone around them. Highly dangerous mindset. And UPB, of course, is designed to rescue us from this. So I hope you will check out the book if you haven't already. It's available at freedomain.com slash books. I hope that you will check out freedomain.locals.com. Join a great community. You get access to my examinations of the French Revolution, Stephbot AI, History of Philosophers series, Lots and lots of great stuff up there. A whack load of premium podcasts with their own search engine and sort engine that's just like the one at fdrpodcast.com but points at the premium podcast. Really, really great stuff. Freedomain.com slash donate. I really look forward to your feedback. Thank you so much for listening to this ear conversation. I find it just fascinating stuff to delve into. I hope that you do too. I'll see you next time in part four. Take care. Bye.